Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We pray that you are blessed by the sharing of God's truth for us this day. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Today, as last Sunday, we're continuing in our an exposition of Luke's Gospel, journeying with Jesus from Nazareth all the way to the empty tomb. And the pericope, that's a $40 way of saying story, that we're looking at today concerns his ministry to a man who was possessed by a demon. So try to preach this because it is, even though the role of the supernatural is not something that we like to confront in this day and time, which is strange. I believe it was Paul Harvey that said that the greatest tactic that the devil ever used was making people believe that what? He doesn't exist. So all through this passage of Scripture, I'd like for you to notice three things. Number one, I'd like for you to notice the tactics that the enemy uses. I would like you to notice the way that the enemy is confronted. And I would like you to also notice who Jesus is in this story. Now that last one may seem a bit odd to say, but Jesus, when he left this earth, when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, his ministry did not stop. In fact, he entrusted that ministry to others. Who did he entrust that ministry to? Us. So with the exception of his particular divine office, the responsibility that he undertook in this story has been left to us. So go ahead and take out your copy of God's Word and turn to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. As we consider right now the story, the image of darkness and light. Starting with verse 31. And remember, just by way of quick review, this is taking place after he went to his hometown to preach. And if you'll recall, they did not receive his word very well. He read their hearts, understanding that they didn't want to receive him as rabbi. They didn't want to receive him as a member of their own church family again, even though he was, he, he was raised there. They wanted the show, they wanted the spectacle, they wanted the miracles. They wanted all of the benefits, but none of the devotion. So Jesus called them out on it. And when they turned around and when they heard the things that Jesus was preaching, they got so upset that they tried to throw him off of a cliff. Jesus uttered the phrase, a prophet is not without honor except in his home town. 
Now, for me, that's particularly interesting because my home church, Liberty Baptist of London, Kentucky, has a cliff on the other side of its building. Well, not really. It's a gentle rolling hillside, but it's steep enough so that it might as well be. And to make matters worse, there is a Somerset Road. It's a four-lane highway stretch that's at the bottom of it. So if I were ever to go back home to preach and they decided that they didn't like me, well, <laughs> I'm glad to be in West Virginia. Um, that was supposed to be a joke, people. Huh? But going on, verse 31, verse 31, he is still in the ministry mode. He is still visiting congregations as a traveling rabbi. He went down to Capernaum, that's the large city of the area, a town in Galilee. And on the Sabbath, he taught the people, which was his custom. Remember, he was a traveling rabbi, and when he went to an area, the first place he went to minister as a recognized rabbi was the house of God. And he enters the house of God to teach, and then we've described this scene. So there was probably either a dirt or a stone floor, a large open room with a table for reading the Torah on, and a bench for the master teacher to sit down on as everyone else would sit at the floor, literally learning at the master's feet. That's where that phrase comes from. So he's now assuming that same responsibility as he was in Nazareth. And he came and he taught the people, verse 32, and they were amazed, struck with authority, struck with his power and his teaching because his words had authority. Now the Greek word there actually has a dual purpose. You see it here translated as authority, meaning that his word, that when he preached, he knew what he was talking about. But the Greek word there also means with power. So you could interpret that not only was, did he have a command of the Holy Scripture, but that when he preached, he preached in such a way that it captured the attention of the people that he was preaching to. Now we have this really westernized image of a meek and lowly Jesus who wouldn't raise his voice above a whisper. But in this context, we're seeing that while he's preaching and teaching, he does so in a way that implies that there's force behind his words and that he captures the people's imagination and that he's holding their focus. So this was not someone who was what we would call a lecturer. This was someone who preached the word of God, who brought it to life in their hearing, and he did so with a sense of power. His words had power. His words had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man, verse 33, possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. Now, whenever I heard this preached in my youth, I wondered to myself, why would a demon, someone who, who we instantly think of as a source of darkness, someone we instantly think of as the enemy, why would a demon identifying Jesus as the Christ be a bad thing? That seems like a well-done statement. He is the Holy One of God. His power is, and His destiny is to defeat the enemy. 
Why would he be riled up at this? And we're going to talk about that later on. But I want you to keep that in mind as we continue in the reading. What is under the enemy's text? What is he thinking? Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed, stunned more literally, and said with each other, What words these are. With authority and with power, he gives orders to impure spirits, and they come out. May God, and the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Jesus, when he preached, did not just speak with a forceful tone. There are a lot of people that, that go to certain churches because they like the, the way the pastor speaks. There's something about his inflections. There's something about his mannerisms. There's something about uh, the tone of his voice, the loudness of his voice. There's something about him that we consider magnetic. But that's not what we're talking about when it comes to Jesus, even though chances are very good that he was a very charismatic speaker. We know from the testimony of the Word of God that when he spoke, people paid attention. And that not only did he gather the 12 apostles to him, but in his traveling ministry as what we would today consider a roaming evangelist, he acquired a group of thousands of people that followed after him. So he knew what he was talking about. He preached in such a way that garnered their attention and he exposed the hypocrisy of the teachers that had come before. All of this captured the attention of those that were around him. Because not only were they experiencing the word of God in its truth, but they were also hearing the very voice of he who wrote it. Every yacht, every tittle, from the dotting of an I to the crossing of the T, Jesus tells us, that the volume of the book is written of me. Everything, all scripture, is God-breathed, as we'll see in just a second. So the very God, the Godhead from whom Jesus is a part, gave the same scriptures that he's going over right now, clarifying for them in their hearing what this actually means. So understanding the Word of God, being devoted to the Word of God, he was able to garner people to him. This is the way that Paul kind of digests the preaching ministry. As he's talking to his son in the faith, Timothy, he writes, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it, and how from infancy... You have known the Holy Scriptures which are available to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So in the Word of God, we hear two things. Number one, the study of the Word of God is supposed to be undertaken by all of us. If you are a Christian, if you are someone who has been a beneficiary of the sacrifice of Christ... One of your first acts of obedience outside of baptism is to get into, to study, to digest, and to be able to learn from the Word of God. In fact, more than one place in Scripture 
God refers to his word as food for the soul. Now, for that, to translate that, imagine that uh, we took fasting seriously here, and imagine that for an entire week, someone went without food. What would they be like at the end of that seven-day cycle? Probably eviscerated, probably weak. Now, can you imagine, as a Christian, the condition of your soul if you only partake of the Word of God one day out of the week? First act of obedience, outside of baptism, for any Christian, is to understand the reason why you have hope. And that means getting into and becoming an authority in the Word of God. And the objection I keep hearing from that is, I'm not called to be a preacher. I'm not called to be a pastor. I'm not called to be a theologian or a professor. Why do I need to understand all of this? It's a big book. The reason you need to understand all of it. We, we jokingly say that it's the basic instructions before leaving earth. And there's a reason behind that. Your hope for salvation is in here. Directions for Christian living is in here. Being able to combat the hate, the violence... The desecration of all that is sacred that's going on within our world and our culture right now, all of that is in here. And unless you know the authority by which we are to live, unless you know the Word of God that spells out who we are to Him in relationship with Him, then you will not be an example of what Christ would have us to be. Make Bible study. Make Bible study a priority, a daily priority of your life. All Scripture is God-breathed, Paul tells us, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be what? Thoroughly equipped. Just knowing John 3.16 is not enough. Verse 17, in fact, as we've discovered, has a lot to do with kind of changing the way that we think about that first verse. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped, fully furnished, in some of your translations, for every good work. That is for all of us. Not just the guy behind the pulpit, not just the person who sits down with the, the big quarterly during the Sunday school class. All of us need the Word of God in our lives. I have hidden thy word in my heart that I may not, what? Sin against thee. How do you prevent sin from entering into your life? How do you recognize the enemy when he is croaching in on you? How do you take part in the ministry of the local church if you do not have a command of what that means? The authority that Jesus presented is something that we all should have a share in. And it might not be speaking the Word of God. It might not be teaching the Word of God. It may simply be for all of us internalizing it, making it part of who we are, and living it out. Be ye not, be ye not excuse me, be ye doers of the Word and not hearers of only. And you can't be a doer of the word if you never hear it. 
1 Corinthians, and this is going into, for those of us who teach, for those of us who preach, this is more along the lines of what Paul is talking about in this phrase. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Where are those who are called to buck up against the culture's downfall? Where are those who are called to stand firm when the ocean of, of ignorance, misinterpretation, and greed comes to swallow us whole? Where are those whose job it is to, to be the foundation on which the next generations will stand? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Jews request a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. The reason that Christ spoke with authority is because he had to. Part of our relationship as being Christians, as being Christ-like, is to be what he was. To be the preacher, to be the teacher, to be the example of love before others. To be the bold proclaimer of the good news of salvation. But also to be the bold proclaimer of repentance from sins. That's all of our job. Some way, shape, or form in the, the, the tent making that we are called to be, to do as Christians. Some of us are uh, working the city government. Some of us are teachers. Some of us have various occupations that we aspire to. But we have one profession. And that profession is Christ. And we cannot be fully furnished unless we have two things in mind. Write this down in your notes. The first thing is that we need to have a command of the Word of God. As professionals, as that professional, meaning that which we profess, we have to have a command of the Word of God. Secondly, we have to have courage in order to be able to either speak or act with the boldness required to make a difference in the culture in which we live. We have to have the courage that it takes to stand against the storm and to be the shoulders on which the next generation will stand. Now let's take a look at what the demon was actually saying. What is the text under the text? How does the Bible interpret what the demonic possessed person was uttering? And before we continue forward, I'd like to say this. The supernatural world exists. The Bible actually, Angelus, the word for angel, literally translates as messenger, is used more often in the New Testament than the word agape, meaning what? Love. So yes, supernatural forces exist. Now, I know that a lot of us have been taught that uh, these were people more than likely, and taught from the pulpits, that more than likely these were people that just suffered from some kind of mental illness. 
Mental illness was recognized in first century Israel. The Bible actually speaks of it. Most of your earlier translations use the word lunacy. It was there. It was recognized. Um, seizures were also included in Scripture and, and were recognized as, a, as not a mental, but a, a physical condition of that age too. In fact, one of the functions of the priest and the rabbi, for those of you that took place during our, our Old Testament study, was to go and examine those who had been afflicted. And one of the things that they would examine was whether or whether or not a spiritual malady was at place, not just a mental or a physical one, for which they did recognize in this time. A lot of the confusion of this comes from us seeing the scriptures with westernized eyes and putting the foolishness and the ignorance and the hypocrisy and, pardon me, but the outright superstitiousness of the Middle Ages on this culture, that it did not belong. The priests would come into a home, and if someone was having seizures, or if someone was suffering from mental illness, they would speak with them, they would offer care to them, and they would, if, if there was a question as to whether the person was possessed, they would look for certain things such as, are they speaking with their own voice, or does there seem to be a second personality at work? Are they having supernatural manifestations of power? Are they offering a communication that doesn't sound like them? Are they able to do things that a person can't? Are they self-harming? There were tactics that they used to see, was this person mentally ill or was this person suffering from a physical ailment? So that was there. Please do not look at this with secondary interpretations because the word of God, if they weren't demon-possessed, if you believe in the word of God, number one, Jesus would not have recognized them as being demon-possessed. Number two, their culture in that day, more than likely, were their mistakes made? Probably so. But they had mechanisms in place to ferret that out, is what I'm trying to say. Finally, the Holy Spirit, the Ruach, the breath of God that we've just talked about, would not have allowed it to enter into Holy Scripture. So again, were mistakes made back in the day? Probably so. Did Christ make them? No. Did the Holy Spirit make them? No. So let's move on. What was the accusation that the demonic presence was trying to foretell to the crowd? I call your attention back to when Jesus was talking through the scroll of the prophet Isaiah in Nazareth. And he, he, he proclaimed the messianic mandate, which was to offer care for the poor, to set the captives free, to declare the acceptable day of the year of the Lord. But he paused at what in your editions would be considered a comma, the day of vengeance of our God. He did not read that, even though that's part of his mandate that will be fulfilled at his second coming. This is also from Isaiah 26. And I want you to notice what it proclaims. Come, my people, enter your chambers, shut your doors behind you, hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. The indignation, the wrath. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood, and there will no and excuse me will no more cover her slain. 
the day of vengeance of our God. Part of the tactics of the enemy, number one, first tactic that I want you to mention because it's, I want you to list down in your notes because it's relevant for today's age, is disguising himself in non-existence. You can't prepare yourself for an enemy that you do not know exists. So not only erase the idea of demons and erase the, the idea of a devil, erase the idea of an enemy, but also erase his counterpoint, erase the identity of God, erase any idea of the supernatural, erase any idea of a world unseen. Because again, if you don't know it's out there, you will not take steps to prevent it infiltrating your life. Best tactic that the devil ever used was convincing us that he doesn't exist. What the enemy is also doing here is trying to lump the people of, of, of excuse me, the people of the Galilee region on his side. You're the Holy One of God. They've read Isaiah. They've had, probably memorized it by now. They know that the day of vengeance of our God is in there. They know that the earth will be filled with violence. They know that if they're found sinful before God, which all of us are, and you decide that the Christ on this earth, that you decide that you want Armageddon to come early, you're the Holy One here to destroy us. And the enemy is lumping all of the people in with him. What do we, plural, what do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Holy One of God, are you come here to destroy us? That's the accusation. Let's fervor them. Let's get them into, let's get them to identify with that which is evil. It's the next tactic I want you to put down. Let us get them to place their own identity on that which is evil. Make the demon your ally. Make the demon your friend, or at least the side he represents. Do we not see echoes of that right now? Because if he can get a fallen people to take his side, then he can continue to flaunt in God's face exactly how changeable, exactly how fickle, exactly how evil the human heart can be. That's his goal, that's his intent. Create misunderstanding and ultimately doubt. Next tactic, create doubt in the word of God. Create doubt in the word of God. And this harkens all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Did he really say all those things? You will not surely die. Create doubt in the word of God. Let's continue on. This is what the word of God says about the first coming of Christ. And you all know this. If you have a command of the word of God, you not only know this verse, but the verse that follows it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And he continues, for God did not send his son into the world to what? 
to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Have you come to destroy us? Incite them to wrath. Proclaim him as the Christ before his time to be proclaimed as Christ when he sat upon the donkey and processed forth, fulfilling several prophecies, including from the prophet Daniel. Confess him as Christ before his time. Rally everybody around him into a frenzy to say that he is bringing destruction upon us. The word of God by Jesus' own testimony says that in his first coming, he comes not to destroy the world, but that through his sacrifice, through his teaching, through his compassion, through his love, the world might be saved. Cause doubt in the word of God. Convince them you don't exist. Convince them that God does not exist and the supernatural does not exist. All of these are in the enemy's toolbox. This is why faith is so important. This is why our reliance on the Holy Spirit as guide and as guardian and as stay is so vital to those that would be Christian. Because without the word of God in tandem with the Holy Spirit Spirit of God, we have no hope. We have no evidence of salvation. That's why the authority is important. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. When the day comes, violence will not be required at the ultimate judgment in this place. We'll talk a little bit more about Armageddon and all that later on. But in this age, in the church age, pre-events of revelation, Christ stands as judge. I want you to think about now the action that Jesus took. Because again, this is something I believe, and this is my own theology, if if you decide to part from it, let me offer you the explanation for why I believe what I believe. We have a tendency to think, well, demonic possession doesn't happen anymore doesn't it? It doesn't happen as frequently. How many people do you know of that have been decent possessed, demon possessed? I believe, and again, this is just me speaking, I believe that when the demon made the accusation that he had an, a fear within him that the first coming of the Messiah would be a fulfillment of the entire text of Isaiah 26 that Armageddon would come early and that the whole world would be judged, meaning that the enemy would be thrown into hell once and for all. And while that isn't what happened, I believe that the reason that the enemy ramped up his infiltration into mankind is because Jesus was walking on the planet at that time. God made flesh dwelt among us. I think that that was enough of an epoch in our history to make the enemy worried and to send out everything that he had to throw at Christ and those that would come to believe him. So that's a little bit of the background that I wanted to share for you. Not that um, 
they don't exist, but I think that at that time, because it was the time of the Christ event, the, the enemy had just decided to ramp up his, his plans. Now let's take a look again at the action. The action in the immediate scripture is that Jesus, from his authority as the Son of God, looked at the possessed person and he said what? Come out of him. Four words. There wasn't a giant ceremony. Tubular bells wasn't playing in the background. They didn't throw water at the guy. There was no incense involved save for that which was used as a regular part of worship. Four words from the Son of God. Come out of him. Jesus later on in scriptures says that greater things than these will you accomplish. Anyway, that's not to say that you should all become exorcists. Don't hear me in that. What I am trying to say is when the, when the, when the darkness comes in whatever form it takes, be it something wrong with the structures of this world, be it financially, be it governmentally, be it wars and rumors of wars, whatever the darkness decides it wants to do, whatever form it decides to take, don't be afraid of it. No virus, no economic downturn, no governmental collapse, no invading army can dispel the people of God. For God is greater. Greater is he that is in you than what? He who is within the world. Hold on to that. Back to this text, as James, the brother of Christ, puts it. You believe, this is kind of a snarky Jewish comment. This, this is very much, I know that we don't like to think of the word of God in these terms, but it's the truth. Uh, this is filled with a lot of sarcasm. You believe there is one God, good. Translation, you believe in God, so what? Even the demons do. And they shudder. Now, what James is, is doing in the context of this scripture is he's using a supernatural truth to prove a very natural point. The point that he's trying to make is that faith without works is dead. But this scripture, in, for our case, for our purposes, as we're studying about the life of Jesus, raises a point. It means that the enemies are afraid of God. Period. The devil is not a counterbalance to God. There is no yin and yang here. The enemy is not God's equal. Never has been, never will be. God created him. God can and will destroy him. The ultimate defeat is guaranteed. This is not a balancing act because evil was never intended to balance good. Evil was intended to be destroyed. And it will be. The darkness will die. The evil will disappear. The devil will be cast into the pit, not where he will reign, but where he will be tormented throughout eternity for the damage that he's caused all of us. Even the demons believe and shudder. So what did Jesus do? 
this is um, the Pharisees growing jealous. Luke 11, verse 15. Some of them said, it's by Beelzebub that the prince of demons, that he is driving out demons. They're trying to discredit him for the good works that he's done. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven, as we saw the people in Nazareth wanting to do. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, A kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. A house divided against itself cannot what? Cannot stand, will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? I say this because you cannot claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now if I drive out demons by him, uh, by whom your followers, well, whom do your followers drive him out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, that's a euphemism for the Holy Spirit. That is a poetic way of saying that Jesus is casting them out because of the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit which is upon him. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is a sign that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is beginning. And right now, who is in possession of the Holy Spirit? You're Baptist, you can admit it. Are you not proud and pleased of the fact that you were a recipient and sealed by the Holy Spirit of God? Christ is basically saying in that the, whole, that the opportunity that the kingdom has come to you, he's saying that the authority that is vested with him, the ministry that God had imparted upon him as our example has now passed to you. Now, it might not be ever at any time that you are confronted with someone who is demon-possessed. Hopefully that will never happen. But the ministry that he was equipped for through this fruit of the Spirit that is love, joy, peace, goodness, faithfulness, patience, self-control. All of that is yours, available to you right now. The strength that God imparted upon His only begotten Son through the power of the Holy Spirit is also available to those who believe in accordance with the will of the Spirit. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are what? Safe. And because of the sign, because of the wonder, because they saw the emergence of the unclean spirit and saw the person who had been crazed by him healed, they recognized that Christ makes a difference. The writer of Hebrews points out the signs and wonders and what place that they have. We must pay careful attention, therefore, he's referring to the gospel that they've inherited, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? If we don't understand the gospel, if we don't understand the power of the Holy Spirit of God, if we don't know what we're preaching, how will it have an impact? If we don't preach with authority, if we don't preach with power, if we don't preach that which we understand, and if we never bother to try to understand it, how will it make a difference? That's what the writer is effectively saying. The salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. God also testified to it by what? Signs, wonders, various miracles by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. 
meaning that the evidence provided to the early church so that they would have an impact wasn't just a story, wasn't just philosophy, wasn't just history. It was a sign, it, it was the signs, the wonders, the work of the Holy Spirit to give testimony to the fact that God makes a difference. And we who heard that, who became convinced of it, who by the power of that self-same spirit became drawn to the throne of grace, we now are entrusted to pass it on. And in their case, the synagogue there at Capernaum, the synagogue who did accept this traveling minister from Nazareth, they grew to believe. They saw the signs, they saw the wonders, they saw the healings. They had a heart that was ready to receive the word of God. The signs and the wonders gave evidence to the fact. So what do we in today's time, what do we in today's time do to combat the darkness? If we don't perform exorcisms anymore, if we don't have the flashy miracles anymore, if we don't have these ostentatious things anymore, if the enemy has withdrawn, throttled back, and if the Holy Spirit's tributes are based according to his will, not ours, how then are we to live? This is the way Paul writes, and Paul answers that question. You know this passage. I even preached an entire series on it once. Be strong in the Lord, and in whose power? His power. Put on the full armor of God. Not one piece, all of it, so that you may stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, Paul is convinced of the supernatural. Paul believes wholeheartedly in it. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, excuse me, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, stand. We may not have to cast out demons, but we know the influence of evil. We might not perform these miracles, but we can still be a living example of love and kindness, forgiveness, goodness, mercy, and grace. And in this day, those are miracles. We may not be called, all of us, to preach the word of God, but we can still have an authority of the Holy Scriptures. If only we avail ourselves to the nutrition that they provide our soul. Coming together as you have been commanded to do. Rebuking not the gathering of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing, but all the more so as you see the day approaching. Do not despise coming together and being a church. Especially if you're in church leadership of any stripe, you should be here whenever the doors are open. 
taking advantage of every discipleship opportunity that we have. Let the word of God make a difference in your life. Let the image of Christ be present on your life. Let it shine. And let it have an impact to others, especially those that have yet to come to know him. So that through the way that you talk, that you live your life, by wearing his image, you can make a difference. And all of that is people said. And Heavenly Father, as we come boldly again before your throne of grace now, as we transition from the service of your word to the service of the table, we lift our hearts to you, asking that you would examine them, that where we have not been the people you've called us to be, saved us to be. That you would first forgive us as we confess that before you. And that secondly, that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness as you have promised in your word. That you would continue to transform us through the power of your spirit to the treasure that is your word. Free us from greed. Free us from apathy. Free us from pride. Free us from lust. Free us from all that which would separate us from a personal relationship with you, from a deep and intimate relationship with both you and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Separate us from our sins. Forgive us, cleanse us, and rededicate us to your purpose so that when we leave this table and we see you face to face, we will be someone, we will be a servant of yours that you will be glad-hearted to see. So Lord, as we again dedicate this time and ourselves to you, into your hands without any reservation, examine us, forgive us, Turn us to the people you'd have us to be as we lift up our voices to you now. And I'll give you the space to pray silently anything that you would like to add before we enter communion. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share his word. And when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.